Welcome back to the Gentleman's Dojo! Boy, oh boy, you had party in the USA earlier, and now this. Cued up. <laughs> Ready to go. We are super excited about today. We are excited. We're going to jump right into it. Let's so, do it. Let's just jump right into it. Let's this. not waste any time. Yeah. Let's, let's just do this. Okay, you, why don't you make the introduction, Gary? So, I was made aware of this book because you were... I was, I was an airport. at a Hudson Booksellers. Yep. Where do you find one of those? Not many places. The airport. Yep. So yep. you saw this book. You said there's this great book out. It's called Shattered. It's about the Hillary Clinton campaign. Yep. You said it. I started reading it. It's great. You said, is there any way that we can get the author on? Yeah. And I said, let's see if we can do it. And uh, made a few calls. And believe it or not, the author of this best-selling book is now joining us on the phone. The author of Shattered inside Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign. Let's welcome to the Gentleman's Dojo, Jonathan Allen. Yeah. Jonathan, yes. thank you so much, buddy. Yes. It's my pleasure. Is the, uh, what's, what's the tagline here? Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I believe that's a Miley Cyrus lyric as well, which is uh, exactly why we're doing this. Look, it's, it's a karate kid reference for, for the uh, young folks. That is true. <laughs> we, we can't say thank you enough for joining us because this book, absolutely amazing. The fact that you're joining us means so much to us. We are just, just in awe of this book and just have so many questions for you. Yeah. I, look, John, I, I got to say, let, let's just start off with a quote from the book. Um, look, we all know how the book ends, so there's no spoiler <laughs> alert here. They hadn't been warned. Hillary hadn't been warned. Even her pollsters had been in the dark, sidelined in favor of an analytics team that insisted she was poised to win. I think that really encompasses, I, I think, the mood in the country, except for a few people. How did everybody completely get this wrong from analytics to, to everybody? How, how, did, how did everybody just not see this coming? Well, I think, uh, number one, our ability, uh, and I'm, I'm not a pollster or a data analytics person, but I, I'll speak broadly for all of us who follow politics, our ability to uh, correctly measure public opinion right now, even in a horse race, which was always the easiest thing to measure, is off. I mean, if you look at what happened with uh, the French election, they were off by seven points, which is larger uh, than, than what the American election was off by. I think there are a lot of people who are uh, in this particular election who either weren't answering the phone or not answering uh, that they would vote for Donald Trump, who actually voted for Donald Trump. Well, I, I want to ask the one narrative that, can, that continues to pop up throughout the course of the book. Um, and by the way, all of us are here big fans of this book and, and what you guys did. It's immense. It's, it's a quick read. It's a great read. And we're big fans, so thank you again. I know I'm echoing what Gary said, but thank you for taking time to talk to three comedians. <laughs> about <laughs> well, thank, you for the, thank you for the kind words, and I'll try not to upstage you because I don't want to look ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> These are, by the way, three comics that never read. So this yeah. is uh, yeah, this is a so big fact that a we big feat. Yeah, up a book and it was yours was a good thing. Um, well, I'm I'm a writer who can't make jokes, so <laughs> well, it's a nice it's a nice marriage. <laughs> well, Gary, um, Hillary had said something towards the end of the book, uh, the chapter t titled Comey, where she said, There are some people in whom I bring out the worst. I know that about myself, and I don't know why that is, but it is. It seems to be that quote to me was like the one time where she was actually self-reflective and, and taking maybe some accountability because throughout the course of the book, the one narrative that you guys strike over and over again is that she had hired all these wonderful, intelligent people to surround her and be part of this campaign. And 
they could never find her voice. They never knew what the narrative, why she was running. And it seemed like that was one of the quotes in there where she kind of was opening herself up and peeling back a few layers of the onion so you could get to know her. But I think the campaign as a whole never figured out why was she running. And I think they were always looking towards her for that answer, where she was looking to them for the answer. Why is it somebody after going in 08 and then coming back, why wouldn't that that would be the one thing you think you would know, am I correct? It would be for most people the first question they would expect to get from any interviewer and they would have prepared an answer to that question that knocked them out of the park. Why you? Why now? And for somebody who had been running for president for at least 10 years because she you know, had geared up before the 2008 run and, uh, and ran again in 2016, she didn't have an answer to that. And, she, and her staff couldn't provide it for her. I mean, that's why uh, there was a, a sort of lack of mission for this campaign. And I, I love the quote that you brought out because I think it's one of the places in the book where her humanity really bleeds through. I, I think that you can uh, read this book and whether you like her or you hate her or whatever, uh, you can see pieces of, of who Hillary Clinton is uh, that you don't normally get. And in that case, uh, this was right around, this was a few days before the election, and she thought she was going to win. And she was uh, sort of making this observation at a time of, of strength in her mind uh, where, and, and decided to show some vulnerability to one of her aides. And what's interesting about that is the aide replied, it's going to get worse in the White House. Yeah. And she said, I know. Uh, or yes, I think it was a reply. So, you know, this was something, obviously, she thought she was about to be president of the United States, and she had this moment of vulnerability. It's not the only one in the book, but I think she's somebody who really uh, thinks that she's taking a risk when she opens herself up. I mean, after 25 years in the public eye, even, even a little more than that, uh, she's taken some shots. And I think she's built up a pretty hard exterior. And I don't think she likes showing vulnerability to the public, and I don't think she likes showing it to her age. It's interesting, too, Jonathan, because we were talking right before you joined us about Donald Trump and just the fact that if he had just kept quiet, not to say that he would have pulled this off, but if he had just kept quiet, maybe people would have been more on his side just because they had a disdain for her. The problem is he kept saying something more ridiculous, more ridiculous, and the whole Billy Bush thing, and yet Billy Bush gets fired and that whole thing, and yet he keeps pulling ahead in the lead when you just think that he's shooting himself in the foot. I mean, it, it just shows you where people were balanced with her, right? Well, I, think, I think if you watch the ups and downs of the campaign, I mean, he did not benefit from the Access Hollywood video. I mean, he, he bragged about sexual assault, and it did not help him. Uh, the, the question, though, is how much of his base did it feel away, and I think the answer is very little. I mean, uh, I think it was Barney Frank that recently said, uh, the definition of the base is the people who are with you even when you're wrong. Um, but, but I do think that, that the, you know, those who were undecided were not enamored of Trump when, when that video came out. And, and her numbers were, were going up at that time. Her numbers went up uh, you know, after the debate. Uh, but she never got to a point where she put him away. You know, she could get up seven or eight points, and she, just, she couldn't put him away, couldn't put him away. And I think that's because there was some broad and deep antipathy toward her. Uh, and, you know, her, her whole strategy in the general election was to disqualify him. Uh, and I think that was built around her aides believing it was difficult for her to get new people to support her. So she tried to disqualify him. And I would say you know, the exit polls showed that one in five of his voters said he wasn't fit to be president and voted for him anyway. 
But didn't um, she somewhat put him away, Jonathan, after the debates? And it's it's funny because there's a quote in the book as well where one of her, you know, surrogates or one of her aides said, you know, those debates had no shelf life. It seemed like she she definitely came out of those debates more presidential, right. and it seemed like she got a nice bounce. But for some reason in particular in this election, there wasn't a shelf life with those debates. Why Why is that? Uh, wh- what is it about this this election cycle between these two candidates where it wasn't as relevant? It seemed like it just happened, and then the next day something else happened in the news. It's a great question. Um, I, you know, I mean, I think I do think she defeated him in all three of the debates, and, on, and you know, by any traditional measure. Uh, and, and the numbers support that. I mean, she definitely got some more distance. Uh, I think that we, we live in a, a period where uh, the news cycle is so fast and the latest piece of information matters so much in our, in our decision-making and our opinion uh, that, uh, that almost nothing has a shelf life. And we think about this election, you'd have to call it the Twitter election. Uh, and news agencies, you know, falling all over each other to report on the latest crazy tweet from Donald Trump is, uh, you know, mind-boggling to me. There's so much uh, substantive, important stuff to report on, and uh, you know, you would think at some point they would say this: this is ridiculous for us to spend so much ink and so much time on on meaningless tweets. But he could redirect the conversation very quickly. I think that um, you know, some of the things she cited when she recently reemerged uh, probably had an effect at the end. The uh, the Comey, you know, Jim Comey coming out and uh, saying he was reopening the investigation. Uh, you know, I think that had some effect. I think the Podesta emails that Ricky Meeks was putting out uh, had some effect. But I think she also, there were larger forces, and this is sort of the, the main argument of the book, is that there were larger forces that put her in a position to lose to Donald Trump, whom I'm pretty sure nobody outside of Donald Trump would have predicted two years ago was going to be the next president of the United States. Right. Was her was her first announcement that she's running, was that on SNL? That, that came on SNL, kind of that appearance as the bartender? Was that kind of the? Oh no, that was that was uh, that was after uh, that was after she was running. That happened in October of 2015. So she'd been she'd been running for for a while then, and she was trying to uh, sort of repackage herself uh, in in the fall of 2015 as somebody who was a little looser, easier to get along with. She did a Jimmy Fallon appearance, um, and you know, I mean, it, it, all of which would have been all right, except for that her aides telegraphed that to the New York Times which wrote a story about how she was going to roll herself out as more authentic. Yeah, she, already, like they, she already had those people in her corner. I mean, those people are already voting for her. Like, but in the, book, in the book, it seemed like that was, you know, from the beginning, it seemed like the, you know, that things weren't going as smoothly as, as they could have or should have. And then that appearance on SNL was the first kind of bright spot where they had something to kind of, it, it kind of put a little wind a little in their real. sails. Yeah, or, or maybe some breaks on the bad tunes at the very least. A little, little wind in myself. I think she she performed well in that. It was funny. Uh, Kate McKinnon's great, so I think it's hard to look bad, you know, in a in a skit with her. Um, but yeah, I mean, she was six months into an email scandal that you know she basically refused to to apologize for it for I don't know, five of those months, uh, and watched her her honesty and trustworthiness uh, dwindle into to scary territory. Um, and so she comes back out in October. Uh, she does the SNL appearance, which you know casts her in a in a more humorous and and lighter light. Uh, she performs well in the House Benghazi committee hearing. I, I don't know if you guys remember that eleven or fifteen or thirty seven or five hundred thirty two hours she sat in that chair and yeah. made the, the <laughs> yeah. House Republicans look like idiots. Um, you know, and then uh, you know that month was good for her. And then Biden you know stepped out of the race, and 
She won the debate against the first debate against Bernie Sanders. October 2015 may have been her best month of the campaign. Well, I want to ask you, because she did recently come out and say, you know, the Comey letter hurt her quite a bit. And that if the election was held a week earlier, it just seems like, especially after reading this book, it kind of plays into the narrative of like, really, there's not a lot of count. It seems as though there's not a lot of accountability on her end. And that's something I got from the book. And then when I saw that 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 news conference where she's she's talking about it and, and saying if it was a week earlier or whatever does that again play into just something in her psyche where where she maybe just didn't do anything wrong i mean i know she says i did some things but it just if you did i don't think you really would come out and say those things right i mean she sort of gave the uh, acknowledgement she felt she had to to the idea that she had some role in her own fate uh, I think she has a lot of trouble uh, taking responsibility or being accountable for the things that, that she didn't do well. And so she says it was an imperfect campaign. Uh, I, you know, I think the book shows that it was a lot more than imperfect um, or a lot less than imperfect. I don't even know how to measure the more or less of imperfect, but uh, <laughs> it was farther away from perfect than, uh, than she suggests. And, uh, you know, this is part of her personality. I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't like to look in the mirror. Uh, my co-author, Amy Parnes, and I, uh, talked to one of her her friends, you know, who spoke to her right after the election, and what that friend said was she was blaming the FBI, the KGB, and the KKK. Um, yeah. You know, and the KKK being, I guess, the deplorables she talked about on the campaign trail, and then talked to somebody else who said, you know, there just isn't a lot of reflection here. But Jonathan, is that on her part? Is that would you say that's arrogance or denial? What would you say? Which is it? Denial. You know, I mean, I, I, look, she's somebody who doesn't like failure. For years and years, she never talked about the fact that she failed the bar the first time she took it. And it was revealed in a book. I think it was embarrassing to her. I don't think she likes it, people seeing her vulnerability or seeing her fail. Uh, and, and not only does she not like that, but more so than the average person. And that's different from other a candidates who maybe, who maybe take a jab at themselves, who are a little bit more self-deprecating? Is that what she was lacking? Yeah, kind I, of? Mean, I mean, you, you, uh, you almost never see a natural moment with her where she's self-deprecating. Occasionally she'll be self-deprecating, and it's clearly something she's sort of loaded up to say. I want to ask. You know, like a comedian with a bad punchline. Right. No, there's a lot. Yeah, there's <laughs> talking a lot to three of them in this room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of that fake punchline. Yeah. The, the one thing, as somebody, obviously, you and, and, and the co author, Amy, are, are both in the media, it, it seemed like over the course of the election that the media really portrayed the Clinton campaign as this well oiled machine, the ground game. They got it all covered. And then you read this book. I mean, you really left the rock on it. It's like it, it, it couldn't be further from the truth in terms of, I, I think, maybe Robbie Mook having a little more um, faith in analytics. Why, why the disparity in the media portraying it as just like this well-oiled machine? And then you read this book, it's, it, it almost seems like the complete opposite. Well, I think nobody had any access to her. And nobody really had any access to hard information from her campaign. And they did a good job of spinning. And they did a good job of making sure uh, that that turmoil internally didn't leak out into the media. Uh, something that Hillary was herself somewhat obsessed with, because in 2008 there were a lot of leaks from her campaign. And rather than seeing those as symptomatic of a campaign that was having trouble, she saw them as causal. 
Um, so people knew they couldn't leak or they'd get in trouble. They didn't leak. I think that's one reason she didn't hear as much as she probably should have some of the problems that were going on. Because one way uh, you have sort of a release valve on a campaign is to talk to reporters who will write things and then the candidate sees them and goes, oh, there's a problem in the campaign, uh, especially people who aren't able to directly access the candidate. So, I mean, I think I think it was largely a function of lack of access and, and to some extent a belief that, uh, you know, in the narrative that Obama and, and the people who had worked for him and some of the people that worked for her had worked for him uh, had really mastered the art of slicing and dicing the electorate and uh, squeezing every last vote out of data analytics. And what that ignores and what that narrative always ignored was that Obama was a really good candidate. He was good on the campaign trail. People in his base liked him, and he was able to reach out across, uh, you know, to independents and, and even to some Republicans. Sure. And, of course, the data for him looked better because he was a better candidate. So, yeah, I, I wondered if there was that big – I mean, because obviously they were looking at the whole analytical side of it when that wasn't – that didn't have anything to do with any – I mean, they clearly went in the wrong direction. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's got to be a balance of art and science uh, in in politics, just like anything else. I mean, you know, you can have uh, your money ball baseball team, right? right? And you can figure out all the efficiencies and get all those guys with great on base percentages. But like, eventually, you got to like get in a slugger or two, or pay a little bit of money for for a couple pitchers that put you over the top. There's there's some art to it. Um, and the same thing's true in finance. You know, they're all looking at the same numbers. And some guys, and you could say maybe some guys just get luckier than others, and that's probably true. But there are people who are like effectively better than others over over long periods of time, uh, who are looking at the same numbers as everybody else. And there's there's a little art to that. Jonathan, I remember, uh, you know, towards the end of the campaign, I, the young lady on CNN, I, the name escapes me, but she was talking to a Trump surrogate who was on CNN. And she said, you know, polls. And he's like, what, what polls? And she said, well, all of them. And I remember that clip being shared over and over again. And just at the time, you're thinking this Trump guy's out to lunch. I mean, he's what polls right. are is he seeing? How <laughs> what polls was he seeing? Because it seemed like everybody else was getting the wrong polls. And <laughs> Mook had so much faith in these analytics and how much blame you know i guess in two parts what polls did the, were the trump was the trump team seeing different polls were they just seeing it differently and then how much blame does i know clinton lost but how much blame does robbie mook really really take upon himself for for his faith in analytics and him being wrong so i think there are a couple questions here one one of which is uh the sort of you know why was all this wrong and were the republicans looking at something different I know that uh, Andy and I spoke to folks on the Republican side who were telling us a couple of days before the Jim Comey letter came out that they were seeing an uptick in their numbers in key battleground states. Uh, interviews that we did at the time, uh, they were saying, look, we're going to surprise you in some places because our numbers are starting, starting to look a lot better. And, I, you know, they may have been, they may have been a little more uh, accurate internally with their own people. Um, you know, the analytics folks do a lot of different things. One of the things they do is horse race the horse race question of who are you going to vote for? It's a very quick way of polling um, mm -hmm. that doesn't really get to sentiment and why people are voting the way they're voting. Uh, and Hillary Clinton's analytics team was coming back with horse race numbers in all the states that showed her with a pad, but Republicans thought they had a chance. I think they also believed they were behind at the end, but they, but they, 
you know, they hadn't surrendered. They, I think they saw good trend lines. And that's always what you're looking for in politics, right? I mean, if you go into a race at the end and it's a two-point difference, that doesn't mean the person that's leading by two points is going to win. What you're always hoping for in politics is that the public, the public opinion is moving in your direction. And I think that was happening for Donald Trump over the last few weeks of the election. I don't think it was solely because of Russia and Jim Comey. Uh, it was already happening before the Comey letter came out. It accelerated after that. Um, you know, and, and the other piece of this the Democrats don't want to talk about because uh, it, it casts uh, aspersions on their, their favorite law is that voters all over the country were hearing about these upcoming uh, premium increases uh, for Obamacare coverage. Uh, that was not helpful to Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was something that you don't hear her people talk about because what it means is they're talking about how Obamacare premiums were increasing and that hurt them in the election. So, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a desire to look at, at only certain factors and largely external factors and those external factors that don't implicate, uh, you know, public policy that they care about. Jonathan, as someone who covers politics for a living, were you shocked at all by this outcome? Yes. It was it was Amy. Were you both? Yes, we were both shocked. On on November eighth, we both thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. It's, no question. It is amazing. I mean, um, do do you think? Let's say she had picked Elizabeth Warren as a running mate. How, would that have changed anything? Do you think? It is. It's hard to play that out. I mean, generally speaking, vice presidential candidates aren't expected to help you a whole lot. You're trying to not hurt yourself so much. Uh, you know, trying to make sure that you don't. Pick Sarah Palin and end up signaling to you know to a large segment of uh, your own party that that they shouldn't vote for you. Uh, but Hillary Clinton failed to get a lot of populist voters who went with Trump and would have preferred Bernie Sanders in a primary. And it's hard to imagine some of them wouldn't have been attracted to her if, or more attracted to her if Warren was on the on the ballot. That said, you don't know what else you might lose for having Warren on the ballot. So. It's, it's hard to play out, but there, one of the things we report in the book for the first time is that Clinton was very unhappy with her short list of vice presidential candidates uh, in, I guess, in June of 2016. Uh, and Elizabeth Warren made this sort of late, late run up the short list uh, to get into contention. Uh, and Clinton sat down with her and Warren went out on the campaign trail with Clinton. And ultimately what we were told by sources who were you know involved in the process was that Clinton decided she couldn't really trust Warren not to grandstand against her if they both got elected. That uh, basically there was a concern that if Clinton did something that Warren didn't like, Warren might make make hay about it in the public. Um, and that that's borne borne out, or it did bear out a little bit uh, during the Obama administration when Warren, you know, challenged him several times publicly on on policy and on personnel choices. Um, but, you know, I think if Hillary Clinton had it to do all over again, uh, perhaps she, with the benefit of hindsight, perhaps she would have thought more about who would have helped her win rather than who would have been the best governing partner once she got there. Mm-hmm. And did Bill, did husband Bill help or hurt her campaign, do you think? I mean, did that, was that uh, a lot of people with bad blood from Bill Clinton years ago? Or did... Uh... Yeah, because in the book, it, there is there is this disparity between like Mook's analytical process and Clinton wanting to go to more, I guess, rural areas? And... Yeah, rural areas and suburban areas. Bill Clinton felt like there was, you know, a, a shift 
among the public. Not that this was shocking. I mean, anybody who's watching could see that there was this sort of populist movement going on. But he believed that she ought to be out there and he ought to be out there making the case for her to people that didn't agree with him. Uh, and Mook wanted him to spend all of his time uh, trying to, to rally people who were with her to make sure that they turned out on election day. Uh, and that was a long-running t- tension. It was something that they cl- butted heads on in the primary and butted mm-hmm. heads on through the general election. And Bill Clinton decided to take a lesser role this time than in 2008. He'd been blamed uh, for some of his off-the-cuff remarks in 2008 and for being a little overbearing with the staff. And so this time, you know, he gave his counsel, he pushed, he cajoled a little bit, uh, but ultimately he didn't try to, you know, overrule the campaign manager. And, uh, you know, you were asking about Robbie Mook's uh, responsibility earlier. I mean, yeah. The guys who actually do the data analytics did their job. Their numbers were off, but they basically did their job. Mook did not, uh, you know, did not have checks in the system to make sure that what they were doing was right. They didn't poll for the last three weeks of the campaign. You know, they didn't do traditional polling. Um, in addition to that, you have to go, like, or, or beyond that, you sort of have to go to Hillary Clinton. She's hearing about this, uh, you know, this sort of tension between the way Mook wants to do things and the way Bill Clinton wants to do things, because they're not the only two people that have those views. Uh, you know, they represent larger groups that were kind of pushing against each other, um, largely along generational lines, though not entirely. But she decided to stick with Mook. And she had this leftover view from 2008 that Barack Obama had beaten her in large part because he was more technologically proficient than she was. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, again, a way of her not blaming herself. Right, right. Right? Not, she didn't look at it and say, well, you know, Barack Obama's a better candidate than I am, or Barack Obama's more likable than I am, or Barack Obama's more honest than I You know, whatever the set of things are and that she Barack did Obama that, may or may not be. It'd be more endearing, I think, if she did do those things. You know, you... Right. I mean, I think one of the things people liked the most about her was or one of the moments where people liked her the most was where she said, you know, I'm not really a natural politician. Yeah. It was honest and reflective and self-critical. Jonathan, could you do me? I'm really curious. Could you just walk us through like what she was going through on election night? Like what, you know, from, you know, as the hours counted down, like what? Because there was some interesting stuff in the book about how she called Barack Obama and apologized. Like, I would just, I, I would love to get more insight on that. Sure. I'll give you the, uh, the, the podcast version of the, the election <laughs> night. <laughs> so, so uh, basically she's got uh, a lot of her aides and her family um, in uh, high up uh, in the Peninsula Hotel in Manhattan. Uh, and she's got a suite there and there's some other rooms on the floor and on other floors where her aides are milling about. And, uh, shortly before results start coming in, she gathers her speech writing uh, crew. It's a couple, it's a guy named Dan Schwer and a woman named Megan Rooney, and they come in to meet with her in her suite. They go over the victory speech. She adds some things, edits some things out. They don't go over the concession speech. So there's a draft written for concession speech, but they don't go over it. Results start coming in, uh, and people outside the campaign start uh, noticing that Florida is going to go south. Inside the campaign, they know, know it doesn't look good, but they're not as quick to realize as some of the people who know the state really well who are down there who are watching the results come in and going, oh, my God, we're losing Florida, and we're losing in places uh, that suggest a bad night in the rest of the country. A little more slowly, the campaign starts to come to that realization over the course of a couple of hours, and they see what happens in Florida, and they're like, oh, my God, if this spreads 
to North Carolina and, you know, some of the industrial Midwest states were done. Um, so very early in the night, they've got sort of a, a dark feeling about what could happen uh, and what's more likely to happen, which is uh, that Donald Trump is going to outperform in a lot of these places. And over the course of the evening, as she's being told about this by Mook, she's really stoic. I mean, she's like processing it. And it's, it's not it's not fully hitting her and she's kind of processing and she's not saying a lot. Uh, She's answering in sort of one word clips. Uh, As the night goes on, it becomes clearer. As I'm sure you guys remember that Trump is going to win. And when it becomes clear with the white house, that that's going to happen, the white house political director, David Seamus calls Mook and says, look, uh, the president doesn't think she should drag this thing out. Basically it's time for her to concede. And Mook says, well, she's not really ready to give a concession speech, which was sort of sort of a cover for what was really going on behind, behind uh, closed doors, which was a debate among her staff about whether it was time to concede or whether they should wait until the morning and see if more results came in from around, you know, around the states that she had been called the loser in because a lot of them were very close. And that debate's going on. And then Obama calls her and he says, you need to concede. Uh, you know, we need to we need to make sure there's a smooth transfer of power. And then he's not entirely sure that she's gotten a message because John Podesta, her campaign chairman, goes out to what was supposed to be her victory party, and you guys may remember this, and says, "We're going to wait till morning." Yeah. So Obama calls Podesta, who used to work for him in the White House, and says, "You know, John, we can't drag this thing out." It's important for the country. You know, we just had this thing where, uh, you know, where, where Trump has been questioning the legitimacy of our election. We can't let that, we can't let that happen. And this is the point at which Barack Obama's interests and Hillary Clinton's interests diverge for the first time in eight years. Ever since he asked her to be Secretary of State, they've had the same interests. Uh, and now, with her losing and him wanting to preserve his legacy as president, and not look like he's the guy at the head of a party that you know can't accept what happened. He wants her to get out there and concede, and she wants to you know she wants to see what's going to happen. At any rate, while while he's on the phone with the, uh, with Podesta, she's basically making the determination that it's time to concede. She ends the debate among her staff. She calls. Uh, she, she says, you know, give me the phone. I'm going to call him. She gets a phone. Gets on the phone with Trump. Says those two words she never expected to say. Congratulations, Donald. They're on the phone for about a minute. He tells her she ran a good race. She goes to sit down at the dining room table in her suite with her aides to look at her concession speech for the very first time, which at this point she's now going to give the next day. And as she sits down to, to look at this concession speech, Huma Abedin, her closest aide, approaches her with a phone in hand and says it's the president. And Clinton just visibly winces. She kind of recoils. She realizes this is the consolation call from the president to the losing candidate. Um, this is sort of an official end. And it strikes her that she's let herself down and she's let her party down and she's let Obama down. His legacy is now in danger. And in her view, has let the country down. And finally, she takes the phone and she walks away from the table toward a toward a private room and she says Mr. President I'm sorry wow 
That, I mean, that's and and it's literally as as it was written. Uh, I'm going to call you December 24th and have you do the night before Christmas to my children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jonathan, that was that was wow. amazing, amazing work. This is the last question we want to ask. I think on behalf of all of us, uh, especially me, because I think this this is where politics and maybe comedy collide. It seems like since this election has concluded, the country is as divided as I've ever seen since I've been on this planet. And with with comedy, it seems like everybody is on the left, you know, from Samantha Bee to Trevor Noah to Colbert, Corden, you go down the line. It just seems like everybody really, and Fallon, who tries to play it straight down the line, is getting ridiculed because he's not going after Trump hard enough. So from a comedian from a comedy perspective and with Colbert you know just a few days ago making that Trump joke about him doing something to Putin yeah. with his lips like as I a think com- you could say that on a podcast can't you we could say it yeah Trump is supposed to <laughs> I'm gonna give you a blowjob okay Putin yeah. so it's just <laughs> I'm gonna suck you off and nobody knows um I'm going to build a wall around your cock with my lips. Um, <laughs> but it just seems like Colbert may have like gone to a place where every time in comedy you cross that line, it's hard to retreat and come back from. Are we hitting a point even in satire where maybe it's going too far with the office of the presidency? Because that's the argument, the counter argument you always hear. And it's something I, I wonder what your opinion is. Yeah, I, it's it's a tough question. I mean, I think that I, I personally would like to see a place, you know, be a, see us in a place where uh, it is in a, inappropriate to go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that you can't say it, but that you shouldn't uh, with the president of the United States in the office of the president. At the same time, I would like to see the pre- the occupant of the presidency of the United States, the, you know, to, to see Donald Trump show that office the same respect right and i think that when he doesn't show it that respect and there have been times when he has not shown it that respect uh it opens the door for other people disrespecting it mm-hmm. um it's one of those things presidents seem to learn and it takes them a little while but they they gently like put that mantle on of being president you know in the first few weeks they're in office and and then they they never lose it and we haven't seen that with trump yet uh, and, we, you know, with all the tweets that he does and the sort of offhanded comments, we're in a place now where the words of the president of the United States don't hold the weight that they used to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's made it a lot easier for comics to go harder after him. And by the way, their audiences, I mean, let's let's face it, the, the buying and viewing public is largely in the coastal places, right? right? There's a lot of money in Washington and Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco, um, and advertisers want those dollars. And I, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that he's making jokes based on that wholly, but I think that that has an effect on, I mean, there's a lot of anger on the coast. And I think that, that a lot of comics are playing to that. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, we are in a better place as a society when we're civil to each other. And that doesn't mean you can't be funny. Ideally you're a good, good enough comic that you can be funny without being disrespectful or you can be, I think disrespectful is the wrong word. You can be funny without being so crass. Gary, he's talking well, to you. Well, Jonathan, you just heard that he's impression. Talking he's talking to you, Jonathan, Gary. Jonathan, you heard that impression Steve did of Trump. I mean, yeah. he makes hundreds of dollars a month doing Shut an impression up. like that. Just so you know. No, I mean, that's a great impression. That was good. Yeah, not Thank too you. bad. I'll I take, mean, that, that, I'll take that from Jonathan. I'll, t- I'll definitely take that, buddy. And, and by the way, just uh, what I've realized. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. 
It's all right if I do about Bill Clinton while you do that. <laughs> nice. You guys should go on the road together. I think we found the closer. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jonathan, you know, we it, cannot. It's funny because we never, we, we don't really go political on this show. Yeah. But, but I mean, we, we, we keep it very lighthearted and, and, you know, what we do. But I got to tell you, when Steve mentioned the book and we all took a look at it, we're like, oh, my God, this is. It's fascinating. It's great. a, I mean, it's a. Fascinating. Whoever autopsy. you voted for, it, yeah. it doesn't matter. This book just brings out so many great issues that went on. And I will tell you this: if I ever run for president, just know that I'm going to make sure Scott Bayo is in my corner. <laughs> I don't care what anything else. Who knew? Uh, who knew? Who Everybody knew? made fun. He had nobody Chachi. there. Chachi was the key <laughs> to helping Donald Trump. He didn't need those big names. All he needed was Chachi. It was That's great. Right. Well, yes. Jonathan, we cannot thank you enough for taking time oh, thank to talk you so about much. your book and continued success with your storied career. We're big fans here. And is there another book on the horizon that perhaps you're you're thinking about down the line? You and my publisher and my agent. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not yet. This one, you know, we we wrap this up in like mid March, so uh, wow. it's a, it's a lot of work, and uh, I'm not quite yet ready to dive into the next one. Well, congratulations. It was a fantastic read. All three of us thoroughly enjoyed it. it. We're doing our best to recommend it. We're, we're going to provide your ground game out here and get the word out about awesome. it. So uh, thank you, Jonathan. Be well. All the best. And hopefully we'll get another book from you in maybe another four years after the next one. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. All right, pal. Take care. Jonathan Allen shattered inside the Hillary Clinton campaign and her doomed campaign. What a great... It was It was honestly wow. a, a fantastic... It was a quick read and it's not one of those, you know... You w- Yeah, right. You'd look at the book and be like, oh, wow, this is going to, you know... But it moved. It's a great book. It's not like academic at all. It just, it's just, it's it's great. It, it, I, I burned through it so quickly. Is it, just, the, is it the greatest upset in presidential history? I think it is, right? I mean... Probably. It yeah. has to be. It has to be. has to be. Especially when she announced her candidacy on SNL. Oh, yeah, that was good. I, I really held that interview great research. down. Great research. Like, yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> By the way, I, I was comparing the analytical and the polling to Rocky IV when Drago was doing all the machines, of the, the machines. machines, and Rocky was carrying wood around the. Uh, right. You thing. know, it's always a great testament to a comedian when he has to explain the joke. Explain <laughs> <laughs> the joke, it's JoJo. Thank Here, you where can they find you? Where can they find you? Uh, Canon Comedy. There you you go. and I will be together. Oh, we're heading on our USO tour very soon. We're, we're doing excited. the USO tour. Keen and I will be in Hartford, Connecticut this weekend Bummer. in another mall. Oh, another mall. Yeah, yeah, Citizen Keen. Citizen Keen. At Citizen Keen, baby. Steve Burn Live. Uh, thank you guys for listening to the Gentleman's Dojo. Get the book, Shattered.